0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 89. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with JP Bourget, founder and president of BlueCycle. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this
1: show, Limit Charlie. My name is Maxim Limit Brossard, and I'm the founder of Limit Charlie, I'm the company behind the SecOps Cloud platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io.
0: Thank you so much for being with us on the show today, JP. It's an honor having you.
2: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, to kick things off, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I'm JP Bourget. I I like to call myself a recovering SOAR founder. Or secu- you know, I had started a security orchestration company in 2014. We actually didn't start out as an orchestration company though. We started out as a incident response, let's say, or SOC ticketing platform, and that as the market evolved. We uh, pivoted into the store market. I sold that company in 2020 to uh, Swimlane, and in 2020, I started a consulting company called Blue Cycle, uh, where we do security operations like advisory work. We do a lot of security data pipeline work, and then we build lots of integrations for MSSPs and vendors and security vendors. The other thing I do that you might you may or may not be aware of is uh, I'm an entrepreneur in residence at Lytical Ventures in New York City. And they invest in cybersecurity, machine learning, and AI. Sometimes when all three of those come together, sometimes individually. Very cool. And yeah, I'm very familiar with Lytical
0: Ventures. They were the original investor in Lima Charlie. So uh, very close to the folks over there. Yeah. And that's how I first met Maxine. That's right. Yeah. And so the, the community touch points all over the place. So I always like to get people's Genesis stories what is it that initially got you interested in technology and how did that turn into a career in cybersecurity?
2: Yeah, so I, I've been asked this question many times. And the, the earliest I can remember is when I was probably, you know, like when everyone had a Nintendo back in 1985-ish when Super Mario came out and Metroid and Zelda and all that first came out. I had a uh, a Nintendo, the original NES, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. And I also had a, uh, a paper route. Uh, and I that's why I bought it. And uh I took it apart and I couldn't figure out how to put it back together. And I think it was a little bit because uh if you remember those systems you used to have to like blow on the cartridges to get them to work and all that stuff and like mine had just gone to you know, stopped working. So I took it apart to try to figure it out, couldn't get it back together, so I bought a new one with my paper out money. And that was a big deal when you were like, you know, a or eleven. So that was like the first time that I started to like wonder what was going on. I I, I remember like friends who have like Commodore 64s and they were like writing code on it it meant you know i had no idea what it was so, so i'll fast forward then to like 2000. i finished high school in 94 i actually flunked out of a cs program in that like shortly after i was more interested in like drinking and working and partying but uh come around 2000 i i, I decided i didn't want to work in restaurants for the next 30 years and um I went back to school and uh, I went to a community college here in Rochester called uh, Monroe Community College. They had a two plus two program with the Rochester Institute of Technology or RIT. And uh, so I did community college for two years. I then went to RIT and got a bachelor's in information technology. And I focused on uh, you had concentrations you did in that degree. And uh, so I did like a sysadmin concentration and a network admin concentration. Then my last quarter there, they were on the quarter system at the time was a network security and forensics class. And I took that, it was super interesting. It was right around, that was in 2005. And that was right when I, um, I think my first food was in 2006. My first staff con was in 2006. So right around that time is when I started to like, learn about like, what I really say is like, I found my people. You know, I, I think a lot of people in security can relate to like, you know, growing up, they weren't necessarily like popular, and mainstream, all those things. And, you know, I was always wired a little bit differently. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I really like I'm like, wow, this is like what I've been looking for my whole life. And, and so I want to throw this definition out there of like the what I what I realized I was like I had a hacker mentality or I could describe myself as a hacker, what that meant to me in like technical terms, was I had a curiosity around understanding how systems work and how to get them to work in ways they weren't intended. Anyways, after I took that that network security class, I uh my professor said, hey, Bourget, we're starting this new degree, this new master's degree, you'd be a perfect fit for it. And that was a master's in what was called computer security information assurance. And mind you, this is 2005, so this was almost 20 years ago. And yeah, nobody had a master's degree that I'm aware of in, in cybersecurity or or that at the time. And so me and uh, myself and probably seven or eight other people, uh, a few of them I still talk to, you. know, we were the first graduating class of, you know, of a computer security or cybersecurity degree program at RIT. At that time, they didn't have their, they hadn't broken cyber out from the IT department yet. And so so the way they characterized it was, it was like where IT, software engineering, and computer science all crossed. Like it was kind of like a third of each of those disciplines. I learned so much in that class, in that in that program, not to get too long-winded. So so then we, um, so so I finished that degree I, I then started teaching as an adjunct professor at IT for four years. So I, I taught that networks and security and franchise class, taught a bunch of like Linux and uh, let's say a sysadmin and network admin type classes for security majors. All, that whole time I was, um, let's just call it a network security administrator at a manufacturing company. So I started there in like 2005 and then I, uh, I left in 2012 and I was functionally the CIO at that point. Like I had, I had built the entire network Rebuilt it from scratch. Uh, we had stuff in China, in the U.S., in Europe. Um, so, so I got to you know do all the things you would do as a system network guy, but also a lot of those things you would do as a security guy. And I, I actually was reading a blog post by Anton Chubakin a few days ago, and he he presented to my one of my classes like when he used to work at Qualys. I don't know if he knew he used to work at Qualys like long time ago.
0: No, I do know that he was the person that coined the term EDR, though, which I found quite interesting when I interviewed him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: but so so I did, I had no clue who this guy was at the time. Like 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 I I know Anton pretty well now, and you know I worked with him in Gardner. I I you know probably every time I'm in Vegas or you know San Francisco, I usually see him. But uh, he uh, he's a smart dude, and, and he's done a lot for the industry and for specifically like blue team side of things. And um, you know he, this was um. Early on, was he was he was already like you know a known entity, but uh, I had no I, I didn't appreciate that at the time, and so so then in 2013, um, and uh, and so I started flying around the world doing sim deployments, and and I'll just say you know, hopefully you don't beat this out, but like unfucking sims sim deployments for for vendors, right? And I was uh, um and uh, and so one thing led to another. We, we I, I was doing that for about a year because I quit my day job. Uh, I flew, you know, 108,000 miles in 2013. I'm going all over the place, took the summer off, did the bike ride. and It was awesome. Um, that started, you know, that, that really started the Defcon bike ride, which is an annual event we do, which is uh, on year 13 now. I can't believe it. And uh, it's like, it's almost a teen, it's a teenager now. And that's where I got the idea to start security, which was like, the, which was the Sore company. And um, what I'll say is I had no idea what I was doing. Like I, I had no right to go start a company, and I, I'm sure a lot of first time founders are like, you know, uh, are in the same position. Like you don't know what you don't know. You don't really understand what you're getting yourself into. And and I actually think I think that's one of the superpowers, right? You got to be dumb enough to think you can do it, yeah, to even have a chance at doing it. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, like it wasn't even a year in. It was it, it took me a year to figure out I had a software company. <laughs> right. Like like you know, I thought I had a security company, but actually no, I had a software company that happened to build product. And market to the cybersecurity audience or the cybersecurity buyer, right? And this was 2014, right? Yeah, this is tw- yeah, like late 2013, early 2014. We moved to DC in 2014. Went through Mach 37, which was a cybersecurity accelerator in in Northern Virginia, the DC area. That that whole thing changed my professional like trajectory significantly. Before. like you're not alone. Like other people have tried this water before. Long story short, we we sold the swim lane that's why you know i started blue cycle that's when i got invited to be the er analytical and you know and now i'm like i have three three young kids i, I know you have a i think at least one maybe a couple kids. i got two yeah yeah you got two and so see so, so you know how it is um i'm kind of in the consulting business right now or service service business because i actually can go home at five o'clock most days i you know it's hard to run it's hard to work at a vendor because you know you're always on for customers and it's not like i'm not a workaholic in some ways but um i'm able to turn more of that off yeah totally it's it's definitely difficult to balance working life and family life well and the hardest part is the context switching for me so like it's really like like, like i have a couple things i gotta get done this week yeah i need like four hour sprints or three hour sprints to do it mm-hmm. right and uh so like i gotta go write some code or i have to go like teach one of my guys how to like how a bunch of things work or something and like, it's not something where i can do in, like 15 minute chunks and so, so that, like, like the interrupts that happen, especially with kids and all that, like that, that's the hardest part for me. And um, it's so true that, like, as, as somebody who writes code a lot, you can't just, you know, do 20, 15 minute sprints and, like, have the same outcome as if you, like, get in the zone. Like, you know, there's times I can get in the zone for three hours and get, like, a week of work, work done. I just want to get back to you, you sort of talked about your history and technology
0: and how you got to yeah. security and then Blue Cycle. I I'm, was kind of hoping we could talk about security a little. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, so you guys, security, yeah, you were a sore company. For anybody listening, can you briefly just tell us like what a sore is and what that problem is is trying to solve?
2: Yeah, well, uh, uh, you might probably start like right before the sore market. Yeah. So let's go back to like 2010, right? I actually found a blog post by this guy David Bianco. David Bianco, he built the Pyramid of Pain, and, and I thought it was a brand new blog post on detection engineering processes and it was from 2014 so sometimes some of these people that i knew back then like blow my mind like the stuff they were doing 10 years ago so, so if you look at like the, a sock of 10 years ago or 15 years ago they they you know there was obviously the need for process there's the need for policy and procedure there's the need for really four things i think that there's the need to on, on a macro level there's the need to handle alerts and respond to incidents but that characterization actually wasn't really well defined it you know i i think 15 years ago, outside of, like, you know, the top 20%. And, and then the, the other thing was that when when you identify that need, a lot of folks, in my opinion, didn't have the tools, the skill set, the people, or the process to do those things. So so to respond to alerts and to handle incidents. So, like, you know, really early on, there, there was uh, the NIST 853 paper. I think it came out, like, 2009. I, I can't remember the year. It might be, you know, came out quite a while ago. And that, that, that really started the um well i would say it started but uh, you know that was one of the you know seminal topics on, or papers on the topic which started to describe the, the process and like think through what you know what threat actors are doing against you guess, Steve. um and so so as you start to you know what do geeks do well they try to build technology to like streamline processes and, and stuff and so you know you had tools like request tracker back then you you had rsa archer you had um grc tools so like a really interesting piece of like the pre-security days was one my, my customer zero before we before we built some uh IR flow, which was our product, um, well, I haven't said that name in like two years. Um, before we built IR flow, um, we tried to build like a uh process documentation, you know, a SecOps process documentation tool inside our SAM, which was a GRC tool, but it just was so not made for that use case, you know, it just fell apart. And so what we did was we, you know, essentially I was working with CISO and the University of Rochester, and uh, and we we started brainstorming. What are the things we, you know, like what are, what are the requirements like managed security operations and and we kind of came to the conclusion that there was two things: there was alert handling and instant handling, and and so we started to go build this like th- this product. I hired a developer who became a co-founder, and and we started to build like you know an MVP. One thing led to another. I tried to raise money in upstate New York. It was really difficult. And, and I've come to the conclusion, and a lot of people have validated it, that it, it was because most of the angel money here had made their wealth on physical things, like manufacturing and optics and things, where they didn't understand the capital intensiveness of software. Yeah. And, like, you know, a, a subscription model and, and all these things. And so, so we had, that's why we moved to D.C. to go through Mach 37. And that um so, so what we first started building, though, was what I would call an instant response platform. And so if I look at the market back then in 2013, 2014, there's really two big players. There was, there were, well, two known players to me at the time, which was resilient, which uh, IBM bought a- at the time. They were called co Three Systems. They, they started out of like a, a need at Fidelity and then, um, there was, uh, Response, which was, you know, characterized as an instant response platform. And then in 2014, Phantom Cyber, which everyone's heard of by now. And what was the other one? So Phantom was in self mode for the first time or for the first year. Anyways, that that was when there started and, and actually swimlane I think started in 2014 also. Um so, so that was when all of a sudden it became clear that well, this wasn't just about like ticketing for the sock, but this was also about automation. What else do you want to know? Like uh I, I mean the question I started with was
0: like for the listeners to: <clears throat> what is the sore and what was the problem you're trying to solve? So I think you, you talked about a bunch of the the prehistory and you were kind of getting to what you built. And-
2: yeah, okay, cool. So we, uh, like I said a minute ago, we we had a, you know, what we called an instant response platform, uh, but it became more clear as as time went on, and as Anton, Tuvok, and Gartner, you know, got more involved, and some other folks, that, that there was actually this bigger problem set, which, which um, or a bigger solution, which was called SOAR. So for security orchestration, automation and response. And so if you look at, some of the early Gartner papers in like 2016, 2017, and, and even probably till today, like they characterized source four core components, case management, threat and tell management, orchestration and automation. And so it, it's probably pretty obvious to you after hearing you speak for a while that you know we obviously have the case management part built out, but we didn't have the orchestration automation stuff built out. So as the market evolved and, you know, what I'll say is, like, if you look at Phantom and Devisto and Swim Lane and, and a few others, like, I had no clue who I was up against from a competitive perspective. Like, Oliver Friedrichs, the founder of Phantom, he had already had like two or three exits, significant ones. He had worked in like you know some. He he was an established business you know, or entrepreneur that like knew knew how to go execute, and we were undercapitalized, like scrappy startup. But we were competing with him head to head. But like, I I was learning along the way. He was just doing it again, right?
0: Yeah, that's tough. And obviously you've had a lot of experience as an entrepreneur, as a cybersecurity professional, this long, really interesting career. I'm curious if somebody out there listening right now, who's thinking about jumping in and starting a company, if you have any advice for them before they take the leap.
2: So like I learn by doing, and it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, I, I'll make a few observations with myself is that, uh, I I was really into like meeting people in cyber and like getting to know people and learning about people's experiences, you know, uh, you know, just networking. Right. And I didn't know what I was doing it for. And it turned out, well, I was doing it because I would need to lead on all these people when I went and started my company, I I had the, the luck that I took a couple of accounting classes in school. I could figure out how to do payroll and run my books for the first couple of years. I, uh, you know, like the like when you're a founder, You're going to work every role in your company for some period of time. The the hardest thing is to know when to give that up and let somebody else do it uh, and give up that control or give up that oversight to something, you know, it's just delegation. But, uh, you know, a a lot of times it's challenging. It's the hardest and probably the most important, I would say. Uh, Yeah. Like, like, you know, I I got a, when I went to Bach 37, I learned so much about marketing, product market fit. You know, there's this concept called crushing the chasm which is it's actually a book or this concept called Crossing the chasm. And, and that's really hard, especially in, in security, especially with so many vendors and like, it's hard to differentiate these days in certain you know parts of cyber. But uh, like, it's a huge commitment. I, I probably said this at, at Mission Control, but like I, I, I didn't, I spent way too much relationship capital on my business and, and I'm still paying that back, you know, three years. Like I'm still kind of like rebuilding, you know, all the time I miss and all the like, you know, fire drills that came up and like, yeah, if I was funded better, maybe one of is worse, but like I had to go through that experience. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, being a, um, like I would recommend that anybody who wants to go build a startup, go work in one first so that they, you know, so they can get that crash course like, and like, and have seen it before. And, and you know, it's funny. Like, I had one job like in tech before I went and did this. Right. I, I had a consulting company for a year, but I don't really, you know, I was doing things right, but uh, you know I hadn't seen like five companies. I hadn't been in the startup before, like all those things. So also, like raising money is hard. I like I can't. You know, there, there's so many. I guess what I'll say is, there's so many. You have to be a jack of all trades, while executing it as an expert, right? So so like raising money is is whole thing, right? So like if you're, if, it's even harder if you're going into a market that doesn't exist yet. You know, like I like a lot of. People in entrepreneur circles will say, you know, if you don't have a competitor, you don't have a market. So being that first player is really hard. You, need a lot, you know, because you have to go educate the market. You know, the, the, there's entire disciplines around sales and marketing and product management. But one of my mentors and the chair of my board for a while, or for most of the company's life cycle, was a uh, guy Tim Sullivan. and uh, he used to preach that uh, he still does that uh, most companies hire sales too early and products too late. And I know leaving Charlie's like a, a product like growth company. And, you know, I, I know some people like you and, uh, and Ross probably like super agree with that, that perspective. Yeah.
0: I've heard that story actually a lot of people who, you know, they, they have a good idea, they build a technology and then before they really understand how to sell it, they go hire a bunch of salespeople and burn through a ton of money because it, they still haven't quite figured out how to position what they're doing and the yeah. product's still evolving. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. So, so like, let's talk about product market fit for a second. So like, you know, I can't, I, I tell entrepreneurs, like, you, you might have a design partner. Like, like, let's say you have an idea, you have some, a little bit of product, but it's not ready for the market. You can't charge money for it yet, but you need feedback early. You know, people are willing to give you feedback early on. Like, you could go build mock ups in, like, you know, in Adobe or whatever, but like, draw it on a freaking piece of paper and hold it up to your camera. And be like, is this what you mean? Right. That co- like that takes five minutes. Right. It costs you literally nothing. Right, and you get the same valuable feedback as if you go pay a developer for two weeks to build to mock it up. Right, I can like unless you you might be one of those people who's like a ninja at building you know mockups. Okay, then do it do it in the technology. But like for me, like I learned the hard way. Like don't go build out a database, all this stuff, just to show a customer something. Literally, draw it on a piece of paper. You're going to save so much time and effort. And like that goes for like your website. That goes for anything you're building, designing. That like you know you need to understand what like. Get out of your head and understand what people really want, like start with a piece of paper, just hold it up to them. And like so much cheaper and so much, you know, your you, your your um your feedback loop becomes so much faster. And no one's gonna laugh at you because they're gonna be like, Oh yeah, well, actually, if you move this box over here and like oh, I want to see the graph over there, oh, okay. Well, that would have been another four hours of tech work, right? Of developer work, but you just got that feedback in five minutes and you have to spend any money on like doing it the wrong way first. So like going and developing code. Or developing your product, and then end up doing the wrong thing, it's just like you're just pissing money away. And like, you know, forget about investors. Like, you know, you you could have been using your time better, or your money better, to get further with like with your with the cash you have in the bank.
0: Good stuff. So we're getting close on time, and I got a couple more questions I want to get through. One of them, you know, you work as an entrepreneur in residence with Lytical Ventures, and you you help parachute in and help young companies get going and stuff like that. What are some of the good signs you see in a, in the team at a company that's starting out?
2: Um, so, uh, like usually having someone who's business focused and someone who's technical is usually a good sign. Not every time like, like, you know, Lima Charlie is a great exception to that. Where like, Max is like a super, you know, TEDx developer type guy, but he's also run the business like very effectively, I think, yeah. but you know, not everybody is Max or Maxine. Right. But, uh, you know, having those two types of things, understanding that, uh, you know, like having that commitment to each other, right. You know, you want them to know each other for a while, but maybe not be best friends. Right.
0: I, I agree with that a hundred percent having been through a company that I started with my best friend.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, having, uh, you know, we look, I, I often, I often look for credibility. Right. So like, you know, it's one thing, like I would never go start a, uh, a company in uh, furniture manufacturing go to market right because like i have no credibility in that space right so, so having you know like y- you want to see somebody y- you know ideally somebody who can go and build a business partnered with somebody who can who has been in the trenches right but but and can execute on the engineering side or maybe you have three people where it's like a business person somebody who has credibility who's not a, d- a developer and then somebody you know then somebody who's a credible you know platform builder or whatever it might be and is there bad signs that come to top of mind? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, raising too much to early. Like, so, so like one of the things that we talk a lot about at Lytical is, um, you know, we invest around, we're looking for around a million in revenue or like, you know, about 100,000 in, in monthly revenue. And we look at that as like a proxy to product market fit. And so, um, you know, in order to get to product market fit, you have to do those things where, you know, you put things on paper and, you know, whatever. But like, Need like a a company that has like uh a you know a chief sales officer you know a VP of sales when they have two hundred thousand dollars in revenue, like that's kind of a you know that's like a hmm how screwed up is the cap table getting because because he's on board right I think that um you know seeing curious technology decisions right so like you know if I saw something built in PHP today I, I wouldn't say I'd automatically look the other way but I I you know I'd, I'd start to get distracted during the pitch seeing, and maybe I see too many pitch decks but like a lot of pitch techs are telling me about a problem that I was talking about 10 years ago and like, like justifying that it exists. So like knowing your audience, knowing your market and ensuring that like there's actually a need. And so, so one of the things I look at is like, if you're trying to sell into new market or become a competitor in existing market, you want to know that like the thing you're selling is going to be one of the top three or four priorities in enterprises next year. Right. So, like, if they're building something that's really low in the chain, like, there's definitely w- worlds where, like, that solution can make sense and, like, you can kind of come and disrupt the market. But, like, you know, just the ability, you know, having them going after a, a, a problem that, like, has the ability to get market share or has the ability to get checks written. And so, so we'll see a lot of stuff that's, like, out of right field. Like, yeah, we get the use case. It makes sense. But, like, you just can't imagine people actually buying this. Or we can't imagine them it being a billion dollar market or being even a hundred million dollar market.
0: Okay. we got five minutes. This is the last one I have for you. It's so the one I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any f- predictions for the future of cybersecurity?
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, like I, I will just give you some observations, right? I- I'm not a big predictor. Well, I-, I guess I am, but you know, okay. So the future of cybersecurity, I-, I obviously like it's been a very interesting year, right? We have everything going on with OpenAI, with Anthropic, with you know, there's there's this whole new, you know, set of capabilities becoming available to not just developers, but you know, I think in the future the masses. And so I think that um at the end of the day, cybersecurity is is very much a big data problem. But the problem is that humans can't always think in the scale of big data. And so I, I think that AI and ML is going to really democratize that ability. And and I, I believe that let's say Twenty four okay, I will make a prediction. Twenty-four months from now, thirty-six months from now, I, I think cybersecurity is going to be partitioned by the people that can think like can think in the terms of leveraging AI versus the people who aren't doing that right now. So so in two years, and three years, if you're not a, a person, a play, you know, if you're not a, a professional in cybersecurity, that can go and leverage these new tools that are coming out, can understand them, can talk to your bosses about them who are non technical. I think if you're, you're going to be unable to do that, I want to say you're going to be left behind, but you'd be at a disadvantage based on the pace that the industry moves. Cyber moves so fast. Like, look at, look at how, how, like, look at how far Lima Charlie's come in, in a few years. Like, look how different just things were than they were in 2020, right?
0: Yeah, e- even our thesis, like when we first started, people, we could talk to them for half an hour and they still wouldn't get it. Now it takes 30 seconds and they get the use case right away.
2: Yeah, and, and like that's partially thanks to you guys. That's partially thanks to like how the market's changed, right? So like things like detection engineering have become, you know, like like a big focus for a lot of organizations. They, uh, where, you know, 10 years ago, that was a very niche, you know, being a detection engineer, is being like being like an elite pen tester against like this specific device, right? It's so different, so. so I guess that's my prediction. I, I think things will be different, but but this is not just like we have a new protocol, out, right? This is like you know it's going to redefine not just cyber, but like you know I think it's going to redefine work in general. But but I do think that like anything, you know, there's people who fear the fear. There's the fear of being replaced versus the opportunity of learning new skills, and you know it's the people that that uh grab the opportunity of le- learning new skills and make the most of it that that will have a hard time transitioning yeah and whenever there's a big
0: technology shift there's tons of new opportunity for companies to be built
2: yeah but but but, but yeah when's the what's the li- like in my lifetime the only other thing that's happened is like the the dawn of the internet right and like uh and, and before that was like the thing before that the industrial revolution was like you know the, i think i think it's like of that magnitude well, yeah, I was going to put mobile phones
0: up there, smartphones, but uh, maybe that's just a subset of the internet. That's just a subset. Of the, that's just the internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, like, it, like I would say that, like, the connectivity of computers. Right. Networking of everything. And the internet boom. Or, like, like just the ability to, like, you know, have, have fast access to information enabled by the internet, enable all these things, right? Like, it's funny, like, I, I, we I know we got to go, but, like, you know, it wasn't until the Clinton administration. Uh, so, so you know, cryptography used to be considered a, uh, a weapon of war or like a uh, a munition.
0: Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't export cryptography to countries on the ban list, kind well, but of thing.
2: which meant you couldn't really use it to secure e commerce. So, so it wasn't until Clinton, like D, you know, whatever the the term is, to like it was no longer a munition. That's when, like, that's that's when the internet boomed was that because now you could have encryption and privacy and all these things that were very difficult previously. Interesting.
0: Uh, maybe we'll have to do a show on that one one day.
2: I, I know where to talk to that. It's not me.
0: Okay. Well, I will hit you up for the intro because uh, I love covering topics like that. So thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I know it took us a couple times to actually get here, but uh, it was great. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon, man. Okay. Take all care, right. sir. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharly.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.